Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. What is the fundamental nature of the neurodegenerative process? Whether you're talking about ALS or Lewy body disease or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or what have you, why are these diseases relatively common? And it's the area of greatest therapeutic failure. As people say, everyone knows an, knows a cancer survivor. No one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. Well, now we know about a lot of them. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable, everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie Tismi, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and today I bring you a conversation about Alzheimer's and women with Dr. Dale Bredesen. Now, you may know Dr. Bredesen because this is his fourth appearance on the show. He is by far the most celebrated guest on Better, and for good reason. Dr. Dale Bredesen received his undergraduate degree from Caltech and his medical degree from Duke. He served as a resident and chief resident in neurology at the University of California, San Francisco, or UCSF, as a postdoctoral fellow in the laboratory of Nobel laureate Professor Stanley Priesner. He was a faculty member at UCLA from 89 to 1994, and then he was recruited by the Burnham Institute to direct the program on aging. In 1998, he became the founding president and CEO of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging and adjunct professor at UCSF. In 2013, he returned to the University of California, Los Angeles as a director of the Easton Center for Alzheimer's Disease Research, and he is currently a professor. The Bredesen Laboratory, which he founded, studies basic mechanisms underlying the neurodegenerative process and translation of this knowledge into effective therapeutics for Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative conditions, which has led to the publication of over 200, yes, 200 research papers. So he is a legend in his own right. And today we are talking about how Alzheimer's is basically optional. This is the first generation where he believes that it is optional to get Alzheimer's. We talk about the difference in common presentations. So we start off our conversation talking about how when he was in the you know medical school, it was very uncommon to see a 52-year-old woman presentation. And now that is the most common presentation with subjective or mild cognitive impairment. And we define those terms in our conversation. We talk about different 
things that are happening in different parts of the brain that may be affecting. So we talk about things like mold toxicity. We talk about glyphosate. We talk about organic and inorganic and biotoxins and how these may be related to this earlier degeneration and how it is affecting different areas of the brain. We talk about genetics. So of course, we talk about ApoE4 and that is the principal carrier of cholesterol in the brain and how ApoE4 actually used to be the most common gene. And we talk a little bit about the evolutionary advantage of ApoE4, something called antagonistic pleiotropy. We talk about dementogens. And of course, we talk about actionable solutions. Of course, that's what the podcast is all about. So we talk about things that you can do with your diet, with your exercise, with your sleep, with your supplementation, with your testing. We talk about blood tests. We talk about a cognoscopy. We talk about new tests that are available through the blood work, what you can be asking your dentist, such a wealth of information. I learned so much in this conversation and I know that you are going to as well. Before we tuck in, I do just want to call out one of you wonderful members of my community who left a review on Apple. This is L Star Smith from the United States and her review is blowing my mind. I just turned 40 and I have a five and a six-year-old. I've been battling feeling like garbage for years and I've slowly started incorporating strategies into my life like breath work, easy exercise to try to get myself healthy enough to lift heavier. Quickly found out alcohol was the devil. And then I found this podcast and not only did it speak to the exact point that I am in my life, but it verified all the work that I've been trying to get on the right track. Stephanie is brilliant and funny and makes high-level concepts digestible and easy to try. I love it. Now, if I can just only get myself healthy enough to lift without hurting myself. Thank you, Stephanie, for putting this out there into the universe. Well, L Star Smith, I appreciate you. And I'm so grateful that you are part of my community and that you took the time to write this review. And if you, my dear Betty, my dear listener, if you are finding value in this podcast, please show us some love. I have a big team behind me that's put this together. It's not just me. I'm definitely standing on the shoulder of giants. So show us some love. Tell us what you're loving about the show, leaving us either a five-star review on Amazon or Spotify or leaving a review on iTunes really helps get the message out to more individuals who need some of this critical information. So thank you so much in advance. And without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Dale Bredesen. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such 
a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Dr. Dale Bredesen, I am just thrilled to welcome you back to The Better Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Great to be here. Yeah, it's always it's always lovely to have you. And you've been on the show now. This is your fourth appearance. Probably the you are the most repeat guest on on the show. And I you. wanted to I wanted to bring you on because one of the things that you've said, uh, I've heard you say this. I think you've said this on the show as well that this is the first generation where Alzheimer's is optional, where, you know, whether you're in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, even maybe 60s and 70s as you are, that this is an optional disease for which, you know, and we'll talk about this, you know, as we get into it, there currently is no cure. So there's no, you know, mono, there's no therapy, there's no drug that we know of that can actually, and I'm using air quotes, cure the disease. So I want, let's just start with expanding on why you believe that Alzheimer's is an optional disease. Absolutely. So in the past, we had nothing that would reverse cognitive decline. And so we're careful to say this is not a, a cure for Alzheimer's. You need, you need autopsy data for that. But what we can say and what we have published, and it's freely available online, we had a clinical trial published last year. And before that, we had, as you know, many, many case studies that were published. And what we can say is that we can reverse cognitive decline, especially early on. So when you develop Alzheimer's disease and get to dementia, you go through four phases. Phase one, you are asymptomatic. Um, you can already show even sometimes in people in their 20s and 30s. And, you know, we used to think of this as, as a disease of our 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. We now know that it starts much earlier than that, but it's diagnosed later. So you can have a period where PET scans show abnormalities and where a spinal fluid shows abnormalities. And actually, one of the biggest advancements, and this is a very exciting time, so much going on, is that there are 
are now blood tests that all of us should have, just as we know our cholesterol and our LDL and things like that. We should know our PTAL 181 and our, we should know our A beta 42 to 40 ratio. These are telling us whether we're headed for Alzheimer's. So like never before, we can see it coming. Then this second phase, if you don't do anything at that time, if you don't get people on active prevention, and I argue everyone should be on active prevention at the age of 40 or if they're older, please start active prevention. Second phase is SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. And we see virtually all of those people reverse. They do very well. By definition, what that means is you know there's a problem, but you're still able to score within the normal range on cognitive testing. That lasts on average 10 years. So you have this wonderful window. So if everybody would get on active prevention or earliest reversals, there would be no, virtually no, Alzheimer-related dementia, which is why I'm saying it's now for the first time optional. The third phase, if you don't do something earlier, is now MCI, mild cognitive impairment. And you know, Dr. Estimates, it's unfortunate that people named it mild cognitive impairment. It's, it's like telling someone you've only got mildly metastatic cancer. It's a relatively late stage of Alzheimer's disease. And that each year, five to 10% of those people with MCI will convert to dementia. And the difference is with MCI, you have preserved activities of daily living, whereas with dementia, you do not. You begin to lose them. You're losing the ability to drive and balance your checkbook and figure out a tip, find the right word, interact with people, remember what you had for breakfast, uh, learn to use a new phone. All those sorts of things are beginning to go. So the bottom line is you can do so much so early now, and we have markers for it, and we have definite improvement in people who are treated appropriately. So that's why I say this disease is now optional. Well, I love what you're saying. And, you know, just going through these different stages, asymptomatic, uh, subjective cognitive impairment, mild cognitive impairment, and then moving on to dementia. One of the things I also wanted to maybe start off with, because I think that this is an important piece for the listener in terms of understanding. I've heard you say on, I've seen you on Twitter, I guess I should call it X now, but Twitter X, that when you were in medical school, that it was very uncommon for you to see, you know, someone in their 50s presenting with SCI or MCI. And now I think it's, you know, a 52-year-old woman is the most common presentation. And so as you were describing, you know, particularly SCI, right? The subjective cognitive impairment where you know that something's wrong, but you can, you know, you can still score, you know, the, the, you know, you can still get in with that normal range on those, on those tests where it lasts about 10 years. My mind went to, you know, those perimenopausal years where we start to see some of these changes in, in hormones. And certainly that's not the only reason why someone might, you know, that, you know, with lowered levels of testosterones and estrogens and things like that. There are, we've talked on previous podcasts about the different categories Yes, um, of Alzheimer's, but I I wonder, and maybe I'll put this out to you to to expand on a little bit. What do you think is happening from the time you know, let's say you were in med school in was it the eighties or nineties, let's say, to now where we're in, you know, twenty twenty three? What's the difference? You know, like it wasn't. I mean, you could certainly make some argument that now there's more women in their fifties and forties lifting weights. You know, we talk a lot about maybe that wasn't happening so much. Then, but then there's been other changes like phthalates in 
the environment and environmental toxicants and weed killer and, and glyphosate and the vaccine schedule has changed. Like what, what is it that you, do you, or I mean, maybe it's some of those, maybe it's all of them. Maybe I haven't even scratched the surface. Like what is driving that change where we used to see someone in their seventies, let's say presenting with SCI. And now we've had this phasic shift where we're starting to see these women and and men, but we know that Alzheimer's is primarily a female driven disease. Why are we seeing these 52 year old women now presenting with SCI and MCI? Yeah. You know, that's such a good point. And you were very kind to say eighties and nineties. I was actually in medical school in the seventies. So that was a long, I'm an old guy, a long, long time ago. You look fabulous. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you very much. So do you. So here's the thing that there are epidemiological studies showing that, you know, what I mentioned about young people um, is not just one observation. Uh, if you look at population studies, the greatest increases in Alzheimer's are in the 40s and 50s. It's it's amazing. It's, and it's scary. You're right. So as you pointed out, what is driving this? Well, you know, there are very interesting studies. If you remember the studies on BRCA, was showing that BRCA-associated cancers, like breast cancer, this is a strong genetic association. But if you go back for years and years ago, the 40s and 50s, it actually didn't seem to drive. There was that not that association. So in other words, it's not just genetic. There's something else going on. And this is what we've heard from Professor Robert Lustig over the years. It's what we've heard from Jeffrey Bland over the years. It's what we've heard from Mark Hyman and David Perlmutter. You know, everyone who's been saying, wait a minute, we are exposed to a poorer food than before. We are exposed to more processed food than before. We are have more inflammation than before. What our research show, we're on the research side, and what our research showed is that this thing we call Alzheimer's, this brain degeneration where you're losing synapses over the years, boils down to two major players. One of them is energetics. As your energetics drop, you increase your risk for Alzheimer's. That is not supporting those 500 trillion synapses that you have in your brain. And that is cerebral blood flow, oxygenation, mitochondrial function, ketone level, all the things you know about that are critical for energetics. And on the other hand, it's demand, which is too much inflammation. The amyloid is fascinating. This has been vilified in Alzheimer's and said, oh, this is what causes Alzheimer's. And as you said earlier, no, it's a response. What it does is very interesting. It responds to reduced energy, by the way, but it also is part of the innate immune system. So when your brain experiences the P. gingivalis from your oral microbiome, what does it do? It sequesters it and kills it with the amyloid. That's how you get these plaques. These plaques have in them the various pathogens. And it can be candida, actually, which has remarkable access to your brain, unfortunately. It can be Borrelia. It can be T. denticola. It can be things related to leaky gut. Whatever it is, your brain responds with this inflammatory response. So the bottom line is low energetics, high inflammation. And interestingly, amyloid is mostly part of the innate immune system's memory. And the memory is stored in three locations, your bone marrow, 
your tissue macrophages, which in the brain, of course, are the microglia. And then interestingly, in your endothelial cells, which is why these people have increased microthrombi, just as you see with COVID-19, for example. So, and this has been a, COVID is a huge issue for the future for Alzheimer's disease because it triggers the very things that increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease. So all of us who've had COVID, and that's most of the people, are at risk for the future. So this is again why I say, please, if you're 40 years of age or older, please get a cognoscopy. And by the way, it's much more pleasant than a colonoscopy. And please check out and, and see where you stand and get on active prevention so that nobody has to worry. One of the things that I that I have said before, and then the TED talk, for example, was that this this is the first generation that shouldn't have to fear Alzheimer's. So uh, my generation, that was a big concern. But for your generation and subsequent generations, there should be no fear. You know, this should not be a major problem because we can do so much. And the other thing that's added, of course, is earlier biomarkers. But it is the change in food. It is the increase in inflammation. It is the, it is the exposures and the toxins that you mentioned. These are part of the drag on that system. So you've got this well-oiled, beautiful ability for neuroplasticity to make and maintain new synapses. And now you're putting too much drag on it and not enough support for it. So it has no other option but to protect itself and downsize. And that is what this amyloid is showing us. So when we talk, let's let's dive a little bit deeper into the energetics and demand, because I think that this is an important equation, if you will, that's worth understanding. So when we talk about, you mentioned, you know, COVID and, you know, how that might lend to sort of chronic long-term inflammation. When we have other things in the environment, let's say, so we have the glyphosate and we have, you know, we'll talk maybe about some dement other dementogens mm -hmm. as well. How, what is happening in the immune system? So do we start with sort of the non-specific, we start sort of with the innate immune system and then we kind of get more, I don't want to say specific because that's not entirely accurate, but is it sort of like this handoff, let's say that we go from like the innate to more of the adaptive where we're now we're looking at T cells and B cells and natural killer cells. Like what is causing the prolonged activation of our immune system that may be affecting our, the demand, let's say on the demand side of the equation? You know, that is such a good point. And that really tells you a lot about what Alzheimer's is, how to treat it, and also its relation to COVID. So just as you said, you've got the innate system, you've got the adaptive system, okay? So what happens is when you first get exposed, your innate system is the initial response, as you said, and it is a nonspecific, it is the evolutionarily older part of the response. And that includes things like your PMNs, for example, that are going up phagocytosing things. It includes uh, the inflammatory response. And by the way, it includes amyloid beta as a sequestrant and as an antimicrobial peptide. It includes other cytokines and some of the mast cell responses and things like that that are all these nonspecific telling you something is wrong, you are on high alert. Then, of course, you do antigen presentation. Now you develop a T and B cell response. And what happens, as you said, you go up here, now your adaptive system comes up and turns down the innate system. 
clears the pathogen through both the T and B cell responses and resets, and now you're all good again. What happens with many people, however, is you get that initial response and you don't get clearance. And it's either because you don't have the energetics. It actually takes quite a bit of energy, it turns out, to make a, an appropriate pathogenic adaptive response. So either because you have continued exposure. So those of us who are living in mycotoxins, exposure, exposure, exposure every day. Those of us who are eating the wrong things, exposure every day. Those of us who have a leaky gut, exposure every day. So either because you don't have the energetics to complete the cycle or because you don't clear it completely or because it's, an, it's a pathogen that actually is able to live chronically. And we see this all the time with tick-borne illnesses, people with chronic Borrelia, chronic Bartonella, Babesia, Anaplasma, Ehrlichia, any of those, you have this chronic mild infection. It's almost, it's almost like having TB for many, many years. So for whatever reason, when you don't get that ability to turn it off, then you have this chronic inflammatory state. And what happens in the, in COVID, as you know, people die from cytokine storm because what happens, theirs just goes off the charts. They have this dramatic inflammatory response that unfortunately can lead to death, which is why people actually then have to drop down with things like dexamethasone, reduce just to allow them to live. Well, what happens in Alzheimer's is not cytokine storm, it's cytokine drizzle. You just have this ongoing for years and years and years, mild inflammatory, pro-inflammatory response. So what we need to do is get that adaptive system to clear whatever it is. And to do that, you've got to identify it. And we see people, as I said, with multiple different chronic infections. We need to address those to get the best outcomes and to turn down this inflammation. So when we treat patients, we want to get that inflammation down. So things like specialized pro-resolving mediators, very helpful, but you've bought yourself a few months. During that time, you now need to identify why is that there? It's often because of a leaky gut or it's because of a change in the oral microbiome or chronic sinusitis or an undiagnosed tick-borne infection. Whatever it is, you need to find it and you need to eradicate it. Now, you don't have the reason for that inflammation. And interestingly, as I mentioned earlier, the amyloid is part of the innate immune system's memory. And so as long as it's triggered, as long as it thinks, oh my gosh, I got to stay on high alert, you're going to continue to have this problem. So we need to bring that alert down, quiet down the innate system, quiet down its memory, say, hey, things are better. And things like as I mentioned earlier, resolvins and, and also things like just omega-3s, very helpful, as you know, and curcumin and things like that. Curcumin, interestingly, actually binds to the amyloid itself. So not only does it give you this nice anti-inflammatory effect, it binds and helps you slowly remove that amyloid. You don't really want to remove it if you're not removing the pathogen, but once you're doing both, you're in great shape. So again, the armamentarium that we now have for cognitive decline is huge. Whereas we were told just a few years ago, there's just nothing you can do. There's a tremendous amount you can do. And the earlier you do it, the better off you are. I want to ask you about how metabolic health plays into that demand piece. We've had Rick Johnson on the show, Perlmutter, Dr. David Perlmutter, as, you, as you've mentioned. And 
have talked about, Rick Johnson has talked about fructose and the ability to sort of have this backdoor, uh, let's say, way into the liver. And maybe you don't have a rise in you know, postprandial glucose, but it does absolutely make you insulin resistant. And so this sort of chronic insulin resistant, I would imagine is also going to be another contributor to sort of this chronic low grade drizzle that you talked about, you know, the sort of chronic low grade inflammation, let's say, that is also going to preclude or that's going to leave the individual more susceptible to developing something like Alzheimer's. What, what are your thoughts on metabolic health and the interplay between that and disease development, Alzheimer's disease development? I think metabolic health will turn out to be the number one driver of Alzheimer's disease. As you know, we have about 80 million Americans who are insulin resistant, many of whom have metabolic syndrome, where you've got inflammation and you've got dyslipidemia, all the things that drive dementia, all the things you don't want to have. And Rick Johnson, as you know, just published a paper not too long ago, and actually David Perlmutter and I are co-authors on that paper. But it's really, you know, long-term Rick Johnson's beautiful and elegant laboratory work that led to this. And one of the points he made, which I thought was really interesting, you can just go down the list of the various things that you see in Alzheimer's, even including what parts of the brain are affected, what symptoms occur, where PET scans are abnormal. And in Alzheimer's, of course, you see this temporal and parietal reduction in glucose utilization. And so you see whether it's with fructose or whether it's Alzheimer's, he just shows how there are similarities between what happens with chronic fructose exposure. And this is not to say you shouldn't eat fruit. That's fine. As he points out, you're, you know, you shouldn't eat 200 pieces of fruit. A little bit of fruit, fantastic. It's got some, of course, it's got some great fiber with it. So that's great. Usually polyphenols um, yeah. and as you, yeah, and apples, exactly. got all pectins and all the good things. Yeah. All yeah. the good things. But what you don't want is high fructose corn syrup and a ton of it. You know, you want to give yourself Alzheimer's, go start drinking soft drinks every day. That throws you into this state. And as he points out, there are three different ways to get to this same unfortunate state. As you mentioned, fructose, but also glucose and also salt. So too much salt, too much glucose, and too much fructose. Any of those will drive you into that state that he defined so beautifully Then, and that will now drive this reduction in ATP. So it's interesting, as he showed, even though you're giving a sugar, your body is responding by saying, winter is coming. I need to turn down my requirements for energy. And you turn down your ATP by about 10 to 15%. Well, the disease we're talking about, Alzheimer's, is driven by low energetics and by high inflammation. Fructose does both. So it's a great way to give yourself Alzheimer's disease. And so, yeah, the metabolic abnormalities, and of course, these have been driven largely by changes in our diet, by you know too much processed food, which is, you know, unfortunately not just got the sugar, but it's also got the salt in it. You know, too much sedentary lifestyle, too much stress in our lives, not enough sleeping at night. This is what's driving these cases. Interestingly, you know, you mentioned the 52-year-old woman that this is the common patient now that we see. And what happens is this is associated not just with a change in metabolism, but what happens is these are people who've been exposed to toxins over the years. They have sequestered, metabolized, excreted. They're doing everything possible to get rid of these toxins they're exposed to, typically not knowing that they've been exposed to them, whether they're biotoxins, inorganics, or organics. Inorganics like 
air pollution, uh, mercury, things like that, organics, as you mentioned, glyphosate and, uh, you know, toluene, benzene, all those sorts of things. Then what happens is as they approach menopause, then they start releasing. You go through the so-called osteoclastic burst and you are now re-releasing these toxins that have been sequestered in the bone for a period of about five to seven years. That's when we see this present, unfortunately. And it's very characteristic in that it's not a typical Alzheimer's presentation. For many of these people, it's not first and foremost about memory, which is the typical Alzheimer's presentation, but it's often first and foremost about executive function, about planning and about calculation or about word finding or facial recognition. Those are the sorts of things you see in this. And often, by the way, presaged by depression. So when you see someone like that, especially if they happen to be ApoE4 negative, because ApoE4 negative, it's relatively uncommon. They only represent a third of the Alzheimer's patients, and yet it represents three quarters of our population. So everybody should know their ApoE status. Do you have zero copies of ApoE4, one copy or two copies? If you've got zero copies, you're looking at a 9% lifetime risk one copy, a 30% lifetime risk, two copies, about a 70% lifetime risk. So again, nobody should have to worry about this. Please get checked. Please get on active prevention. So I want to I want to come back to the woman and just remind me. So when you were talking about her presentation at 52, is yes. that, w- would you call that amnestic? Like her presentation is non-amnestic. amnestic? It would be right. non-amnestic. Okay, non-amnestic. so the amnestic is the temporal, if I recall correctly. More common, yes. That's more common. But the woman, the 52-year-old is going to be more with the, like this is going to be the parietal uh, issues, right? Where she's going to be putting things together, maybe calculating a tip or something. She can't do like the 13% or whatever the tip, whatever the number is in her. Can you expand a little bit on the difference between something that's more common where we see like the temporal lobe being affected, that amnestic presentation. And then this 52 year old, which is less common, let's say the parietal lobe or this visual perception patterns and things that are changing in there. Great point. So, you know, when we were looking at the different subtypes of Alzheimer's years ago, we had the the first patients treated, we noticed that some patients looked very different. They look like they're in a group of their own and they didn't respond to the initial things that we were using because we didn't know about this subtype. So I thought, well, you know, what is going on here? Who, you know, who are these people? And they were typically younger, often APOE4 negative. And by the way, if they are APOE4 positive, they will have some memory issues. So, so we see these and we thought, well, this is a different group. So I started calling the significant others for each of these people and said, you know, what's their history? Where have they been throughout their lives? What are they doing? What are their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, so we realized, wait a minute, these people have all been exposed to these various toxins and or tick-borne illnesses. And so I thought, okay, well, if that's the case, then if we now start to detox them, perhaps they will begin to get better. And that's exactly what we saw. And we see it all the time now. If you don't include detox with these people, they may get a little better from improving their metabolism. But after several months, and this is something pointed out, especially by Dr. Christine Burke, one of the people, excellent physicians working on this new trial, 
that you'll then, after a while, you'll lose that improvement because you haven't gotten at what actually is causing this, which is the toxic exposure. And on the other hand, if you do include detox with these people, they will sustain their improvement. And so, by the way, I just finished a paper now looking at long-term follow-ups from the very first people I treated back in 2012. So we have over a decade now of of sustained improvement, which is unheard of in this disease. My hope is it will continue throughout their lives, but time will tell. And interestingly, some of them will go for several years and do really well and then have a little bit of a backslide and we'll find, oh, there's something new. One of them got a new exposure to a water-damaged building. Another one turned out to have a Babesia infection. Another one was mycotoxin exposure. So whatever it is, you know, you, you now see the backsliding. Something new is going on. You you have missed something. One of them, it turned out to be undiagnosed sleep apnea. So the good news is if you do the right things, you can get that improvement to sustain for a long period of time. So what's happening, those, the 52-year-old person, they look different. So here's what, then I published a whole paper on this. So you'll see the list. Number one, they often start with depression and people will say, oh, yeah, this is just depression and try to treat them with antidepressants. And then they'll say, wait a minute, they're getting demented. What's going on here? So that's the first thing. The second thing is they typically have a non-amnestic presentation unless they're APOE4 positive. Number three is they're often APOE4 negative, which is uncommon for if you see the typical you know, the typical 68, 70-year-old person developing Alzheimer's, they're usually APOE4 positive. So then the next thing is they have this executive dysfunction. You mentioned parietal lobes. Exactly. And so a subset of these people will have PCA, which is posterior cortical atrophy. Those That's a classic. It's also called Benson's syndrome. It was defined by Professor D. Frank Benson, who was a senior professor at UCLA when I was just arriving there as a beginning assistant professor, a very famous behavioral neurologist. And he defined something which is called Benson syndrome, which is PCA. And we've seen a number of these people now. And this is one of the non-amnestic presentations. And interestingly, we had one recently cared for by Carrie Mills Rutland, who's a fantastic health uh, brain health coach uh, in New York City. And what she showed was that the parietal volume in this patient was less than the first percentile. Person went on the protocol, improved in multiple ways, and the parietal lobe volume went from less than the first percentile to the 22nd percentile. Just dramatic improvements. Wow, Temporal lobe volume went up as well, and occipital lobe volume and hippocampal volume all went up. So again, when you're doing the right things, the brain is responding appropriately. And then these people, you'll see that they are hypersensitive to stress. That's another thing. Like when you see this, you can't miss it. They're, they look different than your typical Alzheimer's patient. And to begin with, they're often younger. And interestingly, in the past, people wrote about this phenomenon of this young onset Alzheimer's disease. Most of the young onset, they thought, oh, these are going to be just genetic. But only less than 5% of all Alzheimer's is the three genes, APP, PS1, and PS2. 95% plus is sporadic. And that's where APOE4 gives you the increased risk, but it's not giving you a fate. So you can get around that. And so the, this presentation looks very 
uh, hypersensitive distress, often with depression. They have HPA axis dysfunction, and they really fit some of the things that Dr. Richie Shoemaker defined as SIRS. As he pointed out to me, well, they don't really fit all the criteria for SIRS because they often don't have the peripheral things, the rashes, the pulmonary problems, and things like that. True, but they respond to detox, and they do seem to have this this exposure to these various toxins. And so you have to detox them as part of the overall improving their metabolism, et cetera. And when you do that, they do quite well. And so when you say detoxification, I know that this can be a very heavy word. It can mean a lot of things to different people. When I think about detoxification, I think about augmenting you know, liver detoxification. So phase one, phase two, and phase three. So green leafy, like including more things like green leafy vegetables that have compounds in them, the sulforaphanes and the methanes that are going to help with, you know, hydroxylation and conjugation, those different aspects of, of detoxification. And then obviously gut health, looking at trying to, you know, and I know it's a bit of a, you know, the the microbiome is a bit of the wild, wild west. It's like, what what constitutes a healthy microbiome? You know, it's like there's so many different species and so many different yep. kingdoms, but having, you know, at least let's say beta-glucuronidase, you know, in check where your strobilome is in check because a lot of these things that you're talking about with this non-amnestic presentation can look like very common symptoms of perimenopause. It's like they're depressed, they have HBA axis dysfunction, as you mentioned, exquisitely sensitive to stress, sensitive to hormonal changes. So we can, we, you know, as clinicians, we might look at that and say, oh, this woman is, and then you might get tests to, to confirm, yes, her estradiol levels are lower, or yes, her progesterone levels are lower or whatever it is. And so we can miss this, this presentation of what may look like really bad perimenopause, which is more, you know, instead of it being perimenopause, and it may, part of it may be that, but it could also be that there's some development in the Alzheimer's realm. Great point. Uh, yeah, I think you hit, really hit the nail on the head. And you know, you need that progesterone for optimal detox. You need the estradiol and the testosterone for optimal synaptogenesis. So you really need the appropriate hormones to deal with these various things. And these people do respond very well to BHRT. So this is a, this is a you know a critical part of this. But you're right. Why is it that Many, many women go through perimenopause, and of course, men go through andropause, but there's a slower decline there with the hormones. So when women are going through perimenopause, just as you indicated, so many of them have these symptoms that we're saying, well, wait, these could be symptoms of later Alzheimer's disease. And as you know, a study out of the Mayo Clinic showed if you had an, an oophorectomy at the age of 40 or younger, and you did not have HRT, then you doubled your risk for Alzheimer's. Even though the Alzheimer's was diagnosed many years later, it fits perfectly the model we've been talking about. You are reducing that support for the brain and it's now losing synapses. So this is a very interesting point that why is it that most women, now Alzheimer's is very common and we're looking at 15% of the population dying of Alzheimer's. This is why we recommend everybody get on prevention or early treatment, get a cognoscopy, see where you stand. But you're right. Why is it that women, most women will then pull out of that, whereas the groups that are heading for Alzheimer's? And I think the answer lies in which ones have enough support, enough energetics to turn this around 
as they're now living without the same hormone levels that they had before. They don't have the tremendous amount of inflammation, which is why you need to know what you're dealing with with these people. Number one, what are their genetics? Do they have good detox genetics or bad detox genetics? Do they have problems with their glutathione peroxidase, for example? And as you know, Dr. Sharon Hosman-Cohen has done a very nice job with IntelliX DNA. And of course, there's also 3X4, another good way to do it. There are multiple ways to find out your detox genetics. Then to know what are the toxins you're dealing with? Because if it's mycotoxins, you really want to go on the Shoemaker protocol or the Neil Nathan protocol or one of these things that is including things like intranasal VIP and all the things to restore that HPA axis. Whereas, as you indicated, if it's more of an organic or a, or a, an inorganic, you can do, you know, some basics. You want to activate your nerf too. You want to have, you know, filtered water. You want to make sure your excretion's good. You want to get sweating, sweating, you know, do some sauna, all the sorts of things to get rid of these. Uh, but you don't necessarily need to go with the uh, protocol that's for SIRS. So you, you kind of want to know on both sides, what are your genetics and what are the toxins you're dealing with? And then re respond appropriately. Some people also, if they've got very high metals, are going to want to do some chelation. Although you can often get away with things like the cube, which is from Quicksilver, which is you know which works well for many people. So there are you know you kind of have to decide what you're dealing with. But yes, addressing these things is very important for returning to optimal cognition. And by the way, you know we always talk about decline in cognition. Just normal cognition for most of us can be better. If we're actually doing the right things, we have some mild degree of inflammation. We have some mild challenges when it comes to energetics and just improving those can make, can make your cognition better. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. I wanted to touch just briefly on APOE4. We, we've mentioned it a couple of times, and we know for the listener, APOE is the principal carrier of cholesterol in the brain. And you mentioned, if I remember what you said correctly, zero copies, 9% lifetime risk, one copy, did you say 30%? 30%, and then two, yeah. And then two copies, is, is it over 50 or yes, 70? Yes, around 70%. Now, in some people, it depends on other genes then. It can be as high as 90 or as low as 50. Okay. Um, and it depends on the other genes then. Okay. And so one of the things that, and this is just sort of piggybacking on our conversation around this non-amnestic presentation, is that one of the things that we know about APOE4, and I believe it's what's called sort of antagonistic pleiotropy, which is sort of, it, yeah. it helps you earlier. There's, there's certain benefits that this gene confers earlier on in life that sort of 
you know, then at, after a certain age, it sort of gets you, right? So one of the things with ApoE4, and I just wanted your thinking on this, is that with women who have at least one allele or allele, depending on where you are, allele, allele of ApoE4, high levels of mean luteal progesterone, right? So it, in terms of earlier on in life, this often would, having this gene would make them more fertile, right? But hot, but then it would catch up to them with this faulty lipid metabolism sort of later on in life. So I wanted to just, you know, have you expand on that. And then also, you know, we were talking before with about Rick, Rick Johnson and, and David Perlmutter on glucose and fructose. And I, and I wanted to talk about an, an increased salt. And I wanted to maybe also touch on saturated fat as well. So, and how that may, if you do have an ApoE4, I've done my genetics. I know I'm, I'm a 3-3. Three, three, so my lifetime risk, let's say, is, is 9% if I do all the right things. But for someone who might have one or two copies, what are some of the things or what are some of the considerations that we want to think about with saturated fat? And I know that this can be a very, for whatever reason, this can just be a very controversial thing to talk about saturated fat. Some people get very upset when you talk about not, you know, not including saturated fat, but I think that it's worth sort of parsing apart the nuance in terms of how we metabolize our fats and when we're good and when we're not. Okay. Well, so let's take those in order. You talked a little bit about ApoE4 um, and antagonistic pleiotropy. As you said, it gives you an advantage early in life, but it doesn't care about what happens to you later in life because <laughs> right. once you have the babies and all that, you know, that nature doesn't necessarily need you. And unfortunately for all of us. So, so, you know, that is the case. And it's a good point. You know, Professor Tuck Finch from USC pointed out years ago that ApoE4 may have helped us come down out of the trees. And it's it's one of the most fascinating genes to me, because if you look at the difference between simian genetics, genomes, and hominid genomes, and of course, we diverged between five and seven million years ago. So the first hominids were coming down out of the trees about five to seven million years ago. And what did they need? They were now in a more dirty environment. They were walking along the savanna. They were puncturing their feet. They were getting infections. They were eating meat that was full of microbes. They were, because there's no fire back then uh, that they were, that they could control. That came much later. And then they were fighting with their brethren and they were fighting with their food and all this sort of stuff. So it turns out that if you look at the minor differences, there are not many differences between the simians and the hominids. Uh, we're talking about, you know, over 90%, these are the same. And so what's the surprise is that many of the things that are different between the simians and the hominids are pro-inflammatory. Very interesting. So it's saying it took something pro-inflammatory to get us down out of the trees. And ApoE4, which is the primordial ApoE, and by the way, it's not ApoE4 in chimp, it's ApoE chimp. And there are changes that occur in that and critical ones that allow this to be more pro-inflammatory. So it was helping you fight. So if you live in a third world country today and you're doing those same things and you're getting hit by arrows every once in a while and you're, you're, you know, eating raw meat and things like that, you do better as an ApoE4. You have that ability to fight the inflammation. Now, what happened is for 96% of our evolution as hominids, everybody was homozygous for ApoE4. It's just been relatively recently 
220,000 years ago, which again, in the evolutionary history is relatively recent, 220,000 years ago, ApoE3 appeared. And it clearly has some advantages for modern living because it's now the dominant one. You mentioned you're a 3-3. I checked myself, I'm a 3-3 as well. About 75% of the population is ApoE4 negative, either three, which is the most common one or the more common one, or two, which is the less common one. Then just 80,000 years ago, ApoE2 appeared on the scene. So for most of our history, we have been all been ApoE4 double positive, which now, if you look at, for example, in the U.S. population, only about 7 million Americans 7 million U.S. Americans are, are homozygous, and about 75 million are heterozygous for ApoE4. So, you know, this is still a relatively large part of the population which, with this increased risk. And this has this amazing pro-inflammatory effect. And what we discovered and published years ago is that as a new pathway, ApoE4 actually interacts with RELA, which is part of your inflammatory response, enters the nucleus, and it interacts with 1,700 different gene promoters. And so it is actually turning down a response which otherwise would limit your inflammation. So it's allowing your inflammation to stay high, which is why it is increasing your risk for Alzheimer's, one of the reasons why, and increasing your risk for cytokine storm and death by COVID. That has also been shown for people who are ApoE4 positive. Well, the good news is, if you know your ApoE status, you can address it early. You can reduce that inflammation. And interestingly, there was a study showing a few years ago the magnitude of the effect of a single copy of ApoE4 on your increasing your risk. It matches up with the magnitude of reduction of risk from regular exercise. So just beginning with that simple thing is the beginning of the way to counteract what you have with the ApoE. But the genetics are showing us and the in, and the interaction with DNA are showing us why this is a concern. I think that's so fascinating. And I think when we think about the benefits of exercise, whether that's resistance training, which is my bias, yeah. but I also think cardiopulmonary and cardiorespiratory fitness is very important as well. While we're waiting for a cure, and I definitely want to be talking about what you're doing with your nutrition for longevity, the KetoFlex 12.3, and the precision uh, nutrition program that you're putting out. We were talking in the pre-chat before we started going that there's there's always a drug trial. Like I was just reading, this is coming out of, this was in February, University of Saskatchewan. They're looking at something called neuroepo, which is basically erythropoietin protein, which apparently they're, what they're trying to propose is that this prevents neuronal de cell death and then, you know, prevents the growth and communication of the existing neurons in the brain. And I was saying to you in the pre-chat, you know, they have some, they have some pretty good preliminary results, like 80% of clinical trial participants showed cognitive decline was arrested with no further deterioration, cognition improved in 54% of the participants. And then the control group, so the, they received a placebo, 80% of them showed a worsening in their cognition. But what, so that's like all, you know, we tend to get very excited about research like that. And I was saying to oh. you, you know, one of the things that they're looking at in terms of, okay, how are we going to, you know, sort of prove the efficacy and the safety of this drug? 
yeah. is that they're giving them cognitive assessments, but then they're also looking at biological markers. So they're looking at yeah. decreased beta amyloid plaques, decreased tau neurofibrils and, 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 you know, MRI measurements and so forth. And it's like, but you're not quite like you're sort of getting it, but we're, you're not quite getting the whole picture because the reason why those neurofibrillary tangles, those tau tangles, those beta amyloid plaques, all of that is there in the first place, yeah. you know, to your point, which we've been talking about is maybe there's been mycotoxins like mold, you know, toxins from mold we've been exposed to unknowingly, or we've had fertilizer, like the glyphosate, which is still actively sprayed in corn, yeah. which is the major crop in the U S. So it's like, great. I see that we have these reductions, but you know, you said earlier when, when you were talking about curcumin, it binds to the amyloid plaque, but you don't want to actually get rid of that if you still have the exposure that caused the problem in the first place. So I wanted your comment on, I don't know if you've, if you've been, if you've been following this neuroepo, if the efficacy or, or other drugs, it doesn't have to be this one in in particular, but I was just reading it in preparation for our conversation. And I just think it's really interesting how allopathic sort of pharmaceuticals and medicine in general, they're always sort of looking for the one shining diamond in the rough, right? It's like, they're always looking for the one thing. And one of the things I respect and so admire in you, and you're in some ways such a rebel for, for doing it. It's like, you got to exercise, you got to have ketones, you got to be mildly ketogenic, you got to move, you got to reduce your, like you, you sort of take this multi factor, like this sort of, you know, multi-vertical approach, if you will, yeah. to care, which I think a lot of medicine often misses. Yeah. So, and again, I didn't start that way. We're we're only saying what is the nature of this? We spent years and years in the lab, as you know, we had thirty years in the lab of asking what is the fundamental nature of the neurodegenerative process. Whether you're talking about ALS or Lewy body disease or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or what have you, why are these diseases relatively common? And it's the area of greatest therapeutic failure. As people say, everyone knows an, knows a cancer survivor. No one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. Well, now we know about a lot of them, but that's been what's happened. So we were fascinated in the lab by saying, what is this? And we finally realized, okay, this is a network. These are all network insufficiencies. You have these sub-networks that are for neuroplasticity, for motor modulation, which is what goes awry in Parkinson's, for motor power, which is what goes awry in ALS, for macular support, macular degeneration. You've got all these sub-networks. Each one has its own supply and demand. And so there is a whole network of things that goes into this. And just what you're saying, yes, exercise helps because part of what's going on in Alzheimer's disease is reduced support for the brain. So you got to get that blood flow going. So I'm not against drugs, but the only reason people have gone after single drugs is because, as they say, they are billion-dollar molecules. You can get one of these things and make a billion, you know, multi-billion dollars, and it's looking at a good Alzheimer's drug would bring in something like $500 billion. I mean, that's, that is a tremendous amount of money. And so, of course, it pushes people to do things that aren't always the best science, unfortunately. And so when someone tells you that a drug worked, three key questions to ask. Did it make people better or just slow the decline a little? These anti-amyloid antibodies just slow the decline a little bit, 27%. They don't make you better. They don't even keep you the same. They just slow the decline a little bit. Did it sustain the improvement? And so, as I say, we see people now 
over a decade. If you look at the follow-ups on people on Aricept, Nemenda, they actually do worse than the ones who are untreated when you're going down the line. So it's a short-term effect, just as you mentioned earlier. So this is a short-term effect. It's not a long-term effect. And if you look at the people who are on the anti-amyloid antibodies, they get more brain atrophy than the people who are not on them. And then the third big question is, what were the side effects? In the case of Lakembi, for example, that was just approved by the FDA recently, they have brain bleeding, they have brain swelling, uh, they have a few deaths in the uh, in the trial. So you know you're 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 looking at very high price tag for a minimal effect with a lot of side effects. And of course, everyone recognizes, yeah, so we can do better. Well, we're already doing better, much better by by treating the system as a network instead of treating it, you know, as a single entity. So if you, you know, if you're going to change a complex company that has thousands and thousands of employees and players, you can't do it by changing one janitor. It just doesn't work that way. What you want to do when you're dealing with a network abnormality is you're tweaking here, you're tweaking there, you're tweaking here. You're pushing this network back into where it will work appropriately instead of taking a sledgehammer and just you know crashing it and saying, okay, work better. It just doesn't work that way. So we, we are doing what is physiological. Now, in the long run, I believe that there will be a very important place for drugs, specific targeted drugs at specific dosages to help that network improve. But again, you have to define it first. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing. I know we were talking in the pre-chat about the trial that is already underway. You're testing the efficacy of your protocol. Maybe we can expand on Ketoflex 12.3. We can talk about oh. some what the protocol is and what it is that you're testing. Where are you currently testing? I don't know if you're accepting any more participants, but we can certainly talk about the trial and then maybe uh, what you're seeing with cognitive impairment there. Yes. And before we get to nutrition for longevity, I don't want to ignore your point about saturated fats. So we talked earlier about the innate immune system's memory. If you want to tweak that memory and push it up so that it's now on high alert, giving you even more problems, you can do this by mental stress. You can do it by exposure to pathogens. Of course, that's what it's there for. But you can also do it by saturated fats. And you can bring it down by polyunsaturates. So you want to tweak it high, take some saturated fats. Now, to be fair, and people ask about, well, what about things like, you know, like, like coconut oil and things like that? Well, if you're, if you're in good shape, if your LDL particle number is between 800 and 1200, you don't have lipid problems. It's fine to have some. For those who are higher, who who really do have some issues with lipids, then you want to stay away from them. And again, as with so many of these other things, it's worse when you combine the saturated fats with the sugar, with the inflammation, with the lack of with the lack of prebiotic fiber. That's the word. That's the kind of as we sounds like carnivore. <laughs> yeah, that's the Berfuda triangle. Uh, Don't mean to throw anyone who's you know carnivore under the bus, but that is carnivore. It's right. It's very. It's a high protein, but it's also high in saturated fat. And then there's typically not a ton of fiber because they're not having a lot of the sort of the greens, maybe right. or even just vegetables. I think and fruits that have sort of a higher. Uh, and that has worked. Yeah. And yeah, and that has worked for people who have auto some autoimmune patients yeah. where they're responding to something yes. in the various plants. They have yes. done well. Yes. So for those people, great. 
But we know, and I, I got a, a note about a year and a half ago or so from, uh, uh, from a few well-known physicians who pushed that diet saying, let's debate for cognition. And I said, there's nothing to debate at this point. The only publications are the ones that show that plant-rich diets improve cognition. As soon as you publish something showing that the carnivorous diets improve cognition, call me and then we'll have a debate. But right now, you haven't published any. There's there's no data at all. Having said that, again, for as, as I said, uh, some people, it actually does help with their autoimmunity. Now, back to you mentioned about the diet. A lot of people say the same thing. Nutrition is an important part of optimal cognition, whether you have cognitive decline or whether you have normal cognition. But there's no question to get a plant-rich, mildly ketogenic diet with appropriate sourcing, appropriate organics, appropriate pastured eggs and things like that is not easy. So we therefore worked, and I and I give a lot of credit to Nutrition for Longevity, along with Julie Gregory and my wife, Dr. Aida Lachine Bredesen, who worked with Nutrition for Longevity to develop a, a, a meal service, which has worked really well. And this is KetoFlex 12-3 meal. And you can see it on ketoflex123.com. You can see this. It's easy to get. It's delicious. I've had it myself and, and checked my own ketones. It does help me get into ketosis. It is plant rich. It's, they, they did a great job. And you can choose from different options. So this is, a meal, this is a meal delivery service. It's a meal delivery service. Yeah. And, and, and uh, this is what Nutrition for Longevity has set up. You know, this, this came from Walter Longo. Uh, an excellent researcher, and actually he and I published together many, many years ago when we were both at UCLA. And so they've done an excellent job and with this meal service. And so you can choose different things, but they are all KetoFlex 12-3 to get you optimal cognition. Really, really impressed with what they're doing. And then you mentioned our trial. Thank you for mentioning that. The trial has started. We are enrolling patients. So if you live within a 60 to 90-minute drive from from any of six sites where this is being done, please check this out. Um, you can go to the uh, to the page. So online, it's Evanthea, E-V-A-N-T-H-E-A, Dementia Reversal Trial, and you can see the details. This is, at, at, as I mentioned, at six sites. It's Hollywood, Florida with Dr. Craig Tanio. It's uh, Nashville, Tennessee with Dr. David Hasse. It is Cleveland, Ohio, actually just outside Cleveland with, with Dr. Nate Bergman. Dr. Christine Burke is uh, here just outside Sacramento. Dr. Kat Toops is in the East Bay of, of the San Francisco Bay Area. And then uh, Dr. Ann Hathaway, who's right here in Marin in San Rafael. So if you're near any of those areas, uh, please check it out. And we're looking for people who have MOCA scores of 18 or above. So it's mild cognitive impairment and early dementia. And even though these are the third and fourth stages, this is where we are treating people. And this is very similar to what was done with the anti-amyloid antibodies. And we get much better results before with those. So this is a randomized controlled trial that'll be ongoing for about the next 12 to 18 months. And so what are you doing? Are you able to talk about what the protocol is? So the Keto 12, KetoFlex 12.3 we've talked about. Is there yeah. any exercise in there? Is there any supplementation? Are you supplementing with ketones? Like one of the, I, I, I want to come back to the 
sort of demand and energetics equation. Cause I think one of the things I've found personally is when I take ketones, I feel like Wonder Woman. I feel like I have such clarity of thought. I have the best workouts. So I, and I don't have any impairment. So I can only imagine how awesome having that substrate is available to the brain. You know, if you are, let's say, mildly demented, let's say, or you're having some energetic issues, getting some of the substrate into the brain for the neurons to do what they're supposed to. Yeah. And those are included. So we go through the whole protocol. Now we don't want people to do it on their own before they go in because then it, it yeah, you know, the results. Bias. We want to start yeah, it when yeah. you go, but you can yeah. see it in our last trial. It's freely available online. It was published in the journal of Alzheimer's disease last year. And it is a, it was a proof of concept trial. Now the next one is a randomized controlled trial. So we're taking, you know, next steps toward making this useful for everyone. Um, and then, as I mentioned to you earlier, we are also now establishing the the first, this will be a first in the world, precision medicine program for neurodegenerative diseases. And whether you have ALS or Lewy body or Alzheimer's or any of these things, there hasn't really been a place to go. It's the same old, just what you said, you know, giving a drug and, and watching things decline. And so this is going to be at the Pacific Neuroscience Institute, should be open by the first of the year. And this is with Dr. David Merrill and Dr. Dan Kelly, who's the head of the of the PNI. And this will include all these same things and basically best practices so that we can get you know best outcomes for these. The, the idea here is that it's not just Alzheimer's, but other neurodegenerative diseases as well are fundamentally these network insufficiencies. It's just that in each one, it's a different network, different supply, different demand, different Achilles heel for each one. What are your thoughts on supplementation? I don't know if this is being included in the trial, but we mentioned curcumin. I just mentioned ketones. Uh, I quite like a ketone ester. There's a really nice one that HVMN makes that I quite like. And and Dom D'Agostino and his wife make one called Audacious nutrition, I believe. It's a very good product, quite like it. I think that's a salt though. What are your what are your thoughts on keto well, ketones? Do you like ketones? And then are there other supplements that you think for the long haul are there ones that you like for just as sort of a foundational basic for good brain health? Great point. So I like good outcomes. And anything that we can do to get better outcomes whether, you know, I don't put a crystal on your forehead because so far I haven't seen any data that it makes you better. But if it turns out that it does, I'll do it. Whatever it is that makes people better. And Professor Stephen Kinane from Canada, as you know, published beautiful data showing that ketones actually do improve people with mild cognitive impairment. So absolutely, we use them. And then we get the people into their own endogenous ketosis, which actually has some benefits over exogenous, but good idea to start with exogenous. So there are seven fundamentals. We start with those and then we go to the specifics. Do you have a specific pathogen? Just as we were talking about earlier, do you have a specific toxin? The seven fundamentals are diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, detox, and then targeted supplements. So you have to remember, you know, as physicians, we have to look at any time we are doing something that is not physiological. It's not just getting you to exercise, sleep right, things like that. We are perturbing the system. It's going to have all sorts of ramifications downstream. So when you're using a supplement or whether you're using a drug, you got to look at, you know, what are you doing to change the system? Having said that, you know that the system is not working correctly if you now have symptoms. So you need to address those things. And yes, 
depending on what you have, there is a huge armamentarium of supplements. And by the way, nice data just came out on one called homotaurine, which uh, prevents the oligomerization of A-beta. And the data showed some, some improvement in people, again, in early stages. I have to say it's far better data than what we saw with the anti-amyloid antibodies, as they themselves mentioned in this. So you can check that out. And I think that's going to be a, 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 a very interesting supplement. Now they're, they're going to try to turn it into a drug. No question about that. And is that, you can buy that, can't you? You can buy that you as can a supplement. You buy homotaurine as a yeah. supplement today. Yeah. What they're, what they've done is the, the company that's, that's pushing this is making a pre, essentially an upstream molecule and then trying to get that approved as a drug. So we'll see where that goes. But in addition, of course, I mentioned resolvins earlier. Very helpful. Now, again, some people are going to need these. Some people are not. But for the right people, resolvins very important. Omega threes very important. Mm. Vitamin D very important. Get an optimal level of vitamin D. Zinc for appropriate response. Again, your appropriate inflammatory responses. Re your immune system having it work correctly requires zinc. And most of us are deficient in those kind of classic five: magnesium, zinc iodine, choline, potassium, as you know, most of us are deficient in those. And so you want to make sure to optimize those things. And then, you know, all sorts of things that are, that are coming, that are, you know, that are coming out that are very, very helpful. I mentioned the, the homotaurine, things like, again, you mentioned energetics. That's turning out to be a critical player. So some people like to use niacinamide. Some people like to use nicotinamide riboside. Some people like to use NMN. Whichever you like, that is something that improves your energetics, which is huge, and along with the ketones. And then I, I like the combination of ketone salts and esters because you you get away from some of the of, of the concerns of either one alone. In general, the esters don't taste so great. The salts can end up giving you too much salt. Now, for people who have good lipid parameters. You can get the same effect with MCT oil or coconut oil. But for people who are concerned, and especially lots of APOE4 individuals, because they have an increased risk for atherosclerosis, skip those, get, use the uh, salts and esters to get those ketones up to get that energy. As you know, your brain, you've got two things that are going to, that are going to be burned by your mitochondria. You've got the ketones, you've got the glucose. And so unfortunately for many of us, we lose both because we get insulin resistant. So we don't then not only do we not you burn the glucose, but we do not, we're not able to make the ketones when we have, when we have high insulin levels. So when I see patients with cognitive decline, to me, that is an energetic emergency. We need to get these back. So I need to get them to be insulin sensitive again, but I also need to give them some ketones to, to bridge that energetic gap that occurs just again, as Dr. Kinane has shown us over the years. So these are all very, very helpful. So it's about energetics. It's about supporting mitochondria. So things like CoQ, that, that can be very helpful for supporting mitochondria. And then I mentioned uh, things like curcumin. Some people like to use uh, ginger. There are all sorts of ways to reduce that inflammation. And that buys you several months while you're now looking for what caused the inflammation. And then, of course, you know, you want supports for your system. I like now LDN, to be fair, that's, that's not a supplement. But for people who have autoimmunity, low-dose naltrexone has proven to be very helpful for many. So again, by understanding the underlying pathophysiology, instead of 
closing your eyes and like throwing a dart. Okay, how about this drug? Okay, how about that drug? I mean, it just makes no sense scientifically. Going after what's actually driving the process, that's what gives you better outcomes. I love that. And I could not agree more, especially, you know, with ketones, at least my understanding of it as well, when we're thinking about substrates, if you think about burning glucose, or you think about burning ketones, there's less inflammation, well, I should say less reactive oxygen species that yeah. are sort of, uh, you know, produced as a result of using ketones going through the, the tricarboxylic acid cycle versus let's say glucose going through. So again, you're also at least for someone where we're trying to improve their cognition, you're also going to by using ketones, you can also reduce some of the sort of byproducts of, of, you know, regular metabolism. And some of that, those inflammatory, uh, those pro-inflammatory molecules as well, which is, I just love ketones there. I'm, I'm very bullish on them. I think that they're really great. I think they do a lot of good things. And I would add one other thing, which is natokinase. This is turning out to be very helpful. And I think has kind of been underappreciated over the years. So as we talked about earlier, when you are actively making this amyloid, you're actively responding to these various pathogens, toxins, et cetera. You are putting your, you're saying my innate immune system is on high alert. Again, saturated fats push that. Stress in your life pushes that. Uh, various pathogens push that. So one of the things that happens when you're on high alert is your endothelia change. They are part of this innate immune system memory. So you increase your risk for microthrombi. We see that all the time with people who've had COVID. As you know, young people with strokes but we also see it with cognitive decline. And it's one of the underappreciated contributors. And we see people who have hypercoagulability genetically or because of inflammatory diets and things like that. And taking natokinase and often with, with pycnogenol can be very helpful for these people to get this down. And as you know, people are using this for long COVID as well, because again, these people are in this high state of alert, same story. And so they have this propensity for microthrombi, which impairs cognition, which can contribute to strokes, can contribute to brain fog and things like that. And then finally, High-dose natokinase was used in a very interesting study showing reversal of plaque formation in arteries. So they actually used um, 10,000 units instead of the usual is anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 units. They went up to 10,000. They did not have bleeding side effects in that publication. And they, and they got very nice results with reversal of the, of the plaques. So I think natokinase is an underappreciated part of the supplementation for cognitive decline. And what are your thoughts on, obviously sleep hygiene is very important. Yes. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion lately around nasal breathing versus mouth breathing, and then just how the, you know, you know, using the turbinates and all of the sort of the structures yeah. in the nose can actually help to improve oxygenation. And of course, by, by proxy, that's going to improve cerebral blood flow, oxygen, like, and sleep, let's say overnight, if your if your mouth is open overnight, you know, there's sleep apnea, that's also going to be I would imagine is going to impair the sort of glymphatic system overnight and the ability to sort of clean, scrub the brain, if you will. That's what I think about the glymphatic systems, like a car wash for the brain. What are, what are your thoughts on nasal breathing or mouth, even mouth taping, something like that overnight as a way to improve sleep? Yeah, that's a great point. And you can write books on sleep and sleep hygiene. And of course, Professor Matthew Walker has written a book on this yeah. called 
we sleep. And of course, Ariana Huffington has written a very nice book on this as well. And others have, have written. Dr. Dement, who was the original sleep research physician, wrote a beautiful book about sleep. So there are all these amazing things. So as you indicated, the basics are, yes, you want to improve nasal breathing, and it does improve your nitric oxide, among others. There's another thing that can be helpful for many people, by the way, things like Neo40 or other ways to increase nitric oxide. Nasal breathing is one of them. Your mouth breathing, especially if you are damaging your oral microbiome with things like mouth rinses, can reduce your nitric oxide, unfortunately. And then, yes, you want to get at least one hour of deep sleep per night, at least one and a half hours of REM sleep per night, and at least seven to eight hours of total sleep per night. There's actually a U-curve. You don't want it to be up above nine. You don't want it to be below seven. You want it to be in that seven or eight or so amount of total sleep. And the good news, you know, wearables are changing the world. I think wearables are so helpful because if you think about it, the diseases of the 20th century were acute illnesses like pneumococcal pneumonia and things like that. You can wait for the symptoms, then you treat. The 21st century diseases, most of it is over by the time you get your symptoms. That's very true for Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, cancer, chronic renal failure, chronic pulmonary disease. When you get symptoms, it's late in the disease. So you want to see changes in physiology early, and that's going to be blood tests. And of course, Dr. Lee Hood, who you know, my, my personal hero, wrote a, a wonderful book called The Age of Scientific Wellness, along with, with his protege, Nathan Price. And they talk about the, it's, you know, this is the age of scientific wellness. So you can look at these various parameters and, and pick up things early. We do the same thing with Recode, the approach that we took when you get a cognoscopy. We're looking at all the different things that are giving you risk for cognitive decline. And we can say, aha, these three things are the ones that are putting you at risk. We need to address those three things. And so with sleep, as you mentioned, getting optimal sleep, no question, helpful. Patient zero, the first one who saw me back in 2012, and by the way, she's 79 years old now. She's doing great. She is a brain health coach. She, you know, she improved and she has uh, sustained her improvement for over a decade. And recently she did a 100 mile bike ride. Wow. Uh, and so uh, just absolutely amazing person. So yes, sleep hygiene is huge. You want to make sure you don't have a lot of light, make sure you don't have sound. You want to, and I have to say, this is where I'm really guilty. You want to wind down at night. I tend to want to be doing the writing, reading the emails, doing everything, and then right up to sleep, and then boom, go to sleep. The other thing is, don't ignore your circadians. As they say, there are larks and there are owls. The owls are staying up later. The larks are getting up early in the morning. Whatever your circadian is, fix your diet and your and your daily activities around those. Yes, it no question, it helps you to get more deep sleep if you go to bed before midnight. You want to get a little on the earlier side. So you have some advantages as a lark there. But if you're an owl, you may don't may not want to try to push yourself into something that simply doesn't work for you follow your own physiology. And then as you indicated, you know, you want to do good sleep hygiene. Um, a lot of people have pointed out, you know, turn off the Wi-Fi. Uh, you don't necessarily want want all these. These are energetic uh, waves on the electromagnetic spectrum. So you don't want these things bothering you all night. 
And so, I, again, I think there's so many things where we have we have assumed that it's okay to have processed food and it's okay to do the things we do. We have assumed that it's okay to be exposed to all these plastics and microplastics are coming out, another big issue for the brain. We have assumed that it's okay to be stressed all the time, you know, work 24-7, have very little sleep. And it's just turned out that all of those assumptions were wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm interviewing in a couple of weeks his name is Darian Oli, and his book is called Fatal, Con- uh, Fatal Conveniences. And I think it's such a great title. It's like all these conveniences are actually killing us. I um, love it. Yeah. 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 Fatal Conveniences. That's a great one. Yeah. So every time you come on, I, I've learned so- I learned something. I'm going to actually look up homotaurine as, as a supplement in, in terms of protocols and, and applications. But Thank you so much for your time and your brilliance. I think that you're one of the few, there's, there's something to have reverence for someone who's been schooled a certain way. You know, you've gone through sort of the traditional medical system and through your own lived experience as a clinician has, have seen how it's not the entire picture. Like you said, you're not against drugs, but maybe there are other ways that we can be looking at patients in terms of more of a holistic viewpoint. There can be different prongs that we can attach, let's say. And I just want to, spend a moment to to recognize that in you and every time that you come on the show you are so generous with your your focus your energy your wisdom and my my audience is so lucky to have you so and and as am i so i just want to thank you so much for your time today and we'll make sure that all i've been taking notes as we've been talking so all of the um the nutrition for longevity program the the precision nutrition program like we'll make sure that all these things are in the in the show notes and yeah, thanks, Doc. It's, it's just such a pleasure every time we get to connect. Always great talking to you, and thank you for spreading the word. I mean, we, you know, we're living in a new world, and again, let let's make it so that we we reduce the global burden of dementia, and people don't have to worry about dementia. And thanks so much for uh, for the discussion. Always enjoy it. Thank you. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 